Hey everybody, I'm recording the intro today on my phone to just give you get you kind of used to the audio quality that's going to take place in this episode. We have a legendary comedian with us today. His name is Daryl Lennox, and uh, he's he's absolutely fantastic, full of knowledge, full of insight about the business. Um, it's got a little different pace to it this episode because we do talk about some serious things, a little more serious than normal. Um, but also just a fantastic time listening to Daryl. Daryl has been losing his vision for quite a while, and it officially is gone. He's 100% blind now, so he called in, and uh, then, of course, my my card that I normally record on was full, and so I'm recording in the Zoom room today. A lot of things going on, but... If you're able to um, really focus and listen, you're going to get a ton of insight on comedy and just get to listen to one of the coolest guys in the business. I mean, it really is incredible what, what he's done. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. I'm actually, I don't hope, I know you're going to, and, uh, and can't wait to get you guys back uh, next week. All right. Enjoy. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember... I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hey everybody, this is Chad Daniels and you have landed in the middle of somewhere. Hello, thank you for joining us. This is uh, wonderful. We have a fantastic show today across from me, as always, Cyrus Amundsen. Hi buddy, it's nice to be here. I managed to finish my food before the show started. So oh, I... that's what you think because you can't see your mustache. There's still some food in there. My goal was to <laughs> not have to deal with that indignant fucking look on your face because I needed, my time zones are different and I, I don't like to shift my lunch for our show. So I raced through it so I didn't have to deal with your judgmental eyeballs and I'm here now. You looked like a five-year-old eating uh, powdered donuts or a <laughs> 25-year-old in the early 80s. You just had white powder, whatever that was, all over your mustache. Oh, I thought you were saying uh, just how a child can't help but, like, mash food into their face at an aggressive rate when it's something they want. Also that. Yeah. I, I like to write my jokes in layers. Sure. I had real I, – I, it was a real wood chipper mouth situation with these breakfast tacos. <laughs> I am going to stop talking to you because I am so excited for our guest today. We have uh, – I don't even know how to get into this. I mean, we're we're dealing with a, a comedy legend, and um, I just had the privilege of getting to hang out with him the night before Thanksgiving at the Kevin Bozeman pre-Thanksgiving show in Madison. And um, if you want an encyclopedia of comedic knowledge, if you, uh, you know... I've been doing this for 23 years and uh, this gentleman sat me down and was like, have you ever thought of this? And I was like, what? I mean, 
just the the insight is absolutely incredible. So I'm just going to bring him on right now. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Daryl Lennox. Hey, thank you, Chad and Cyrus. It's good to be here with both of you guys. That's pretty uh, pretty nice. nice thing you said about me, man. I appreciate it. But obviously, I love your game. So uh, always a pleasure to be around you. Well, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And um, I'm going to tell the story that I told in Madison. So I was trying to get into a club. Uh, did you start comedy in Canada? You did, right? No, I started Seattle Comedy Underground. Oh, well, that's pretty close to Canada. So I'm going to take that as a half yep. point credit. Okay. A club that's been a club that's been both the worst and best club in America at some point in this in this last forty years. Absolutely, <laughs> could not have been more well said than that. <laughs> but you know, the reason I thought you started in Canada is because when I go to Canada, like when you tour the clubs in America, there's always an oversized. There's pictures of comedians everywhere, but there's always an oversized picture of, let's say, Robin Williams. Or um, you know Eddie Murphy, or just like, and, and then I go to Canada, and your picture is the one that's oversized. I mean, you go to Winnipeg, and you tell people you know Daryl Lennox, and and it's like they'll carry you out of the room without even having you say another word. And that and that's what brings me to this story is I was in Vancouver, and this we we're going to this nightclub, and this line was so long, so I walked to the front of the line with some of the staff and I was peering in and the bouncer goes, can I help you? And I was like, Oh, my friend, Daryl Lennox is in there. And he, um, he told us just to, just to head to the front of the line. And you were not in there by the way. And, uh, and then he goes, you know, Daryl. And we were like, yeah. And then he let us in. So I've been using your name for shit forever. I feel like this is uh, that Justin Bieber song where I'm, I'm the girlfriend that uses your name for stuff. Uh, why in the world you think I would know a fucking Justin Bieber song, Chad? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, um, Canada's been an incredible place for me, man. So I started in Seattle, uh, and then uh, about five years later, I just destroyed my career. Uh, and then ran into L.A., uh, got married too fast, and, and destroyed that too, so I had no place to go. I had one week of work up in uh, in Vancouver, and then uh, I was booked as a headliner, and then they fired me midweek and dropped me down the middle uh, <laughs> at the end. <laughs> so, at, at the end of the week, the club owner goes, so where are you going to go now? I said, I have no idea, man. I got no place to go. I'm homeless. And he goes, stay here so you kind of figure things out. And so I stayed there, and um, I, th I, I did a big reinvention of myself, you know, instead of trying to be famous and try to chase stardom, I just wanted to fall in love with being a great comic. And so that's where I started doing it. It was Canada. So I stayed there basically from 94 until they kicked me out in 2005. So I did a lot of work during that time. That's incredible. I have, I have so many questions just based on that story. You said you ruined your career. What, what happened? Yes. Um, so I was, uh, I'm a big, one of those big, goofy manifest destiny guys, uh, sure. the thinking grow rich kind of guys. But because I grew up kind of janky, I always tried to shortcut it. So what I did was, um, <laughs> you tried to so, shortcut manifest destiny. Yeah, I tried to shortcut it. Yeah, I tried to shortcut it. <laughs> so, uh, 
so this is, you know, 92, 90, 92 somewhere when Mark Curry was the hottest comic in the game. And you know, this is, it was very popular to be black comic back then. So everybody was getting TV shows and I was just a smart guy with not a lot of talent. And so, uh, I got to hang out in LA and I met this guy who was a big agent from, uh, William Morris named Rick Greenstein. Okay. So I met him, and I, and so what I did was I went back to Seattle, and I told everybody that Rick Greenstein had signed me from the Wiz Morris Agency. Uh, and so then Seattle being a small town, uh, next thing you know, I'm getting calls from the newspaper, and they bought me up the headline. So I just I started riding with it. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so uh, the level of girls I was getting changed drastically, and so I was really faking it till I make it. Um, I just and I just kept pushing the narrative. And then at some point, it all came to a head when uh, I told everybody I was going to be in Arsenio Hall on March the 15th, the odds of March like an idiot. Uh, and then I, I flew to L.A. Uh, and just stayed in an apartment with Carl Banks and Troy Third Deal, two local comics from the Northwest, and watched myself not appear on Arsenio, bro. And so then... Uh, then and then, uh, and then the then the backlash hit. You know, everybody was like, "Oh!" So then, two comics turned. You know, went to the press and told them that I had made up all this stuff. And there's a big article. Daryl Lennox is a comedic fraud, and so I was I was persona non grata in uh, in Seattle, LA, everything. I was just it was just a mess, dude. And so uh, I went to went to uh, went back to uh, so I went to Vancouver. And then I called everybody that had ever dicked around uh, and apologized and, and sent back. I was paying back women $20 Canadian a week because that's how little I was getting paid to cancel my debts. So I really had to just really kind of do a whole clean myself out and start all over. And so that's what happened, bro. It's two things. One, that's, that's a real – people don't usually have that self-realization when they've been acting like a piece of shit. They normally just, like, nobody really lives out my name is Earl, where they just apologize and try to right all their wrongs because they got caught. So that's pretty good on you. But also, I kind of long for the days where you could carry out a lie like that for months and months. Like, now, what would a comedian pull that off for four days with Twitter? Like, I, I, I kind of miss those days where you could just lie about who you were for half a year. Everybody, everybody's sex game was way much better pre-Google. We could just make up anything pre-Google, right? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. You could um, be anything. You, you know, I was there on the grassy knoll. I saw it. Wait a minute, you're only twenty. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I had a little bit of that too in my life, where, um, you know, <clears throat> a while back, I stopped lying completely, even white lies, and I. Uh, I had to call some friends and sit them down. So I traveled to see them so I could sit them down and <clears throat> talk to them about, I don't know why my throat sounds like I'm underwater right now, but there we go. Got it. Guys, he's starting to cry. Uh, don't let him, don't let him lie to you. <laughs> he's, he's, he's emoting. Oh. And then another thing. Uh, but yeah, so and, and it, it's not easy to make those calls and have those conversations uh, at all, you know? So no. Uh, that's, some people understand. Some people understand. Other people go, well, you deserve it. Fuck you. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that's a tough pill to swallow, but you have to. You have yeah. no choice. So, yeah. So that's how I messed everything up. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, there's been some grace because uh, you're back at it, um, uh, killing it, of course. And so I'm going to talk about this later, but you have a new album. Uh, you have a new album coming out and uh, only person ever to have a comedy special on stars, which is, I, I don't even know how someone does that, but uh, so you said you were, you were in Canada from 1994 to 2005 when they kicked you out. Why'd they kick you out? Um, so right around 98, 99, they changed the liquor laws. You used to have to have a permit. Uh, the club sends you a work permit application. You take that to the border. You pay 125 bucks, and they let you in. Then they changed the liquor law so common clubs didn't have to issue work permits. And so, but nobody knew how to do it. So they, they just said, just you know, just come up here. But I already had an apartment up there, so um, I was going up there for years and doing the festivals. And you know, even though I had an apartment there, I would have to literally get a ride from Vancouver all the way down to Bellingham and circle the flagpole, come back. Okay. Well, because um, uh, I'm such a goofy idiot dude and play too intense about things, uh, a couple of girls got mad at me. And so one of them knew that my biggest fear at that time uh, was from the movie Casino. Remember when uh, the stupid kid, uh, his uncle came in at De Niro's office and said, was there a place along the trough you can... Yeah. De Niro goes, nope, he's too stupid. Is there a place you can just place him? Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, the uh, so then the cowboy guy says, "When are you guys gonna learn? You don't. You're not from here. You're just renting this place, and we're gonna have to kick the kike out of here." And that was always been my biggest fear is that because I've lived so nomadic, all somebody could ever do is I'm gonna have to kick this dude out of here. So like a dummy, I told this girl that I was. Uh, she found I was cheating on her, so she called immigration. So on <laughs> August nineteenth. <19th, laughs> August 19th, 2005, uh, I'm newly in love with Claire, who became my wife. Uh, I fly um, from Tampa to come back to Canada to do a gig, and uh, they froze me up and said, you know, we think you're living here illegally. And I was like, no, I'm not. And then so they put me in there. They said, we're going to put you in jail. I said, okay, I am living here. But I told them everything. I told them everything. They said, well, because you're misrepresented, you know, you're banned from this country for a year. I go, what about my apartment and my stuff, everything? They said, you know, you have to figure that out, but you're not allowed here for a year. If you try to come back in, it's a permanent ban. Mm. So they spun me around, and all I had was uh, a duffel bag once again. Uh, and so I had, to, I had to figure out where I was going to go. And so uh, they kicked me out, and eventually after the year was up, uh, then just ram it through the ringer all the time, but finally now you know I'm really they've accepted me what back um, and incredibly so much so now. So oh, th that's great. I can't believe you've you as an adult you've had two redos because I know yeah. where you are now. I know where you are now, so I don't. I guess it surprises me that you've had to start over with a duffel bag twice. Yeah. Cause I, I don't, well, I don't see myself coming. I mean, that's like tailspin worthy for me. I would lose my shit probably and just, you know, end up in jail for free food or a mental institution. And I'm not mocking the mental institute. I'm saying, I, I think I might. You know what? Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about, you know, your own expectations, 
you know, we all try to do that. We gauge ourselves. But for me, I didn't want everybody that said I was a piece of shit to be right. And so if I would have let either one of those duffel bag incidences, you know, in my journey there, they would have been right. So I believe I believe what I'm capable of is a lot, which, you know, made me take a lot of insane, dumb risks. Uh, but I've always believed that I'm capable of something extraordinary. And so I just can't. That's part of the journey, I guess, getting homeless a couple of times. Uh, well, if that's what it takes to be extraordinary, then that's what I'm going to do. And so I would never advise anybody to do it like that. Uh, but that's yeah. just what I've done. Yeah, I, I see similarities in that, too. I mean, I think that's, you know, <clears throat> part of the reason, you know, you get divorced and, and you think, well, everybody has this this vision of you. And if you don't like the vision, it's up to you to change their mind. And so I've, you know, I've also also had to deal with that. But twice, I mean, I'm just picturing you at the border with a duffel bag. That's yeah. that's absolutely mind blowing. It was too. So you're calling in today. Normally, we have uh, people in the Zoom room. You're calling in uh, because you cannot see. No, nope. not anymore. Yeah. You so you. When I met you, you had a little bit of vision. And then the first time we talked, you said, yeah, it's just, it's slowly closing, slowly closing. And then when I saw you in Madison, um, you're, you're completely blind now, right? Right. Yeah. Um, like, so the left eye, um, I've always been born with really bad eyes, just really super myopic, degenerative eyes. And the left eye, uh, during that, first duffel bag trip to Canada, I got into a fight um, because my ex-wife uh, told me that um, she had just had sex with Charles Barkley and James Worthy, uh, and I'm a loser sleeping in a bunk bed in Canada, and so that just infuriated me. Can I, uh, can I weigh in here? Please do. That, uh, your wife sounds really cool. That sounds like something I would have said. Absolutely. She's going well, to this. Okay. <laughs> your ex or your girlfriend. This sounds, I mean, that's, this is like the height of Charles Barkley too. Like he's just retired going yeah. into the hall of fame. 90. He's about it's, to be yeah. a superstar on TNT. Yeah. If you're going to get splayed by somebody in your ex's face, Sir Charles is a good choice. Yeah. Charles Barkley and James just, yeah. So this is 93 when all this went down, man. Also, so she I, chose, she chose James. While well, he was chose, still playing. Yeah, she chose two players. But <laughs> even though James was still playing, she chose two players that were from such different generations that she probably could have hurt both you and your dad's feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, so that's what she did, man. It was, uh, so that was infuriating. And then, uh, so I got into a fight and the guy clocked me pretty good in, uh, in the eye. Uh and I didn't go to the doctor, of course. It turns out he partially detached the retina. Oof. Um, anyway, uh, so the left one uh, went to zero vision gradually. So I've been blind at left eye probably, you know, since about 96. Uh, and then the right eye, you know, I had a surgery, which led me to right blind ambition in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, I was afraid that if I went to total vision loss, that uh, I would commit suicide because I, I saw my stepdad uh, pass away and he looked so peaceful. And I thought maybe, maybe there's rest at the end of all this fighting. So I thought if I had to rely on people for the rest of my life, I'd rather just not live anymore. 
so I put all that pressure on myself, um, and then uh, the surgery became successful, and I wrote that piece of material, and it led to you know a career uptick. Uh, and then now, ten years later, uh, it was last June. Uh, I was at uh, my crib in Vancouver, and I saw a text, barely could see it, and I closed my eyes, uh, went to sleep the next morning, it was all gone. And so during the pandemic, I went to zero vision, and so I've just been adjusting ever since. Can I, so that's what, it. what was that, that moment where, like you said, you still, you had it, and you can remember seeing the text before you went to bed, and you woke up and it was gone. Having feared it for that long, what was that moment like when you realized it was gone? Um, I was preparing for it because about a year and a half earlier, uh, I became allergic to the glaucoma meds that they put me on. Okay. And so there was no alternatives. And so uh, I, I had my living room and assistant uh, move out because I wanted to learn how to do everything by myself. So I took a blind cooking class and I just tried, I just want to learn how to do it. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Right. So at first, wow. when I woke up, um, it was there was a slight panic, but then I started, you know, just breathe. You know, just breathe. You're still who you are. You still have the same dreams, and you just have to learn how to do this even better. You prepared for this, and so there was no more fear after that. It's just more frustration from time to time, but no fear at all. No sadness. It's just, just you know, this is just a new part of who I am now. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Because I. I Again, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, and I'm not doing well. I, I, am, I am not passing the Daryl Lennox test even a little bit. I mean, I've, I've purposely gone to jail because I only had a duffel bag. And thinking about waking up with no vision, <clears throat> I, you're, you're talking about breathing? I'm, uh, my chest is tightening up. Just thinking about it. And I know people... Listen, I know there are a lot of people to deal with it, but I'm just thinking about that that one morning. And then so how long how long did you lay in bed that morning? What 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 were you I mean, you kind of said what you were thinking about, like you're the same person, you have the same dreams, you just have to do it differently. But did you lay in bed all morning trying to make no, heads and tails? No, of man. It? no, 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 no. Because um because you know, I played pretty competitive basketball. I knew the first thing you feel something, you know, if you define it in that moment as either good or bad, then that's going to dictate your emotions about it forever. Yeah. And so, uh, so I just wasn't going to lay in that bed and think about not seeing forever. I said, I have to get up. I'm going to meditate. And, uh, you know, I've got the house memorized, you know, so you just, just get, get to work. Sure. Get to work. You you mentioned uh, you played so. competitive basketball. Uh, apparently, not competitive enough for your ex-wife. Come on! All right. <laughs> okay. Which is why she slung those arrows at me. But uh, good insights, Chad. I can see why you went to jail on purpose. <laughs> oh man! Uh, yeah. <laughs> You ever tried to break a bad habit and you feel like you're climbing Mount Everest in flip-flops? Yeah, a lot of people have felt that exact same way. But here's a breath of fresh air. Fume. It's not about giving up. It's about switching up. Fume takes your habit 
and simply makes it better, healthier, and a whole lot more enjoyable. It's an innovative, award-winning flavored air device. Instead of vapor, fume uses flavored air. Instead of electronics, fume is completely natural. And instead of harmful chemicals, fume uses delicious flavors. You get it. Instead of bad, fume is good. I've got some buddies who are trying fume out. They love the taste. They love the feel. They love the look. Plus, Fume just released a magnetic stand for your Fume, so there's no more losing it around the house. You just plop it on there, use it when you need it, and then you can stick it back on there for those of us who are constantly losing things. Start the year off right, everybody, with the good habit by going to tryfume.com somewhere, and Fume is giving listeners of this show 10% off when they use the code somewhere to help make starting out this new good habit that much easier check it out tryfume.com you said something on stage in madison and do you mind if i do you mind if i bring it up not at all okay because i I don't know but you you said something that was so interesting to me you said with everything that's going on in the world right now with the pandemic with political division you said you have no choice but to trust other people. And that puts you in a whole different headspace. And I thought that was incredible. Like I actually tuned out for a second. I like tilted my head like a little puppy trying to figure something out. And I was, I was blown away by that. I thought that was incredible. The fact that I have to trust people or the fact that I said it? The fact that you, that you <laughs> no, I, I believe you'll say anything because you can make anything funny. But I'm saying... The, just the fact that you, the, the, the whole situation, right? You're saying, well, I can't see anything. So I'm forced to trust other human beings where people with sight walk around all day uh, judging and not trusting. Yeah, that's, this isn't, this isn't a curse to not be able to see anymore. It's, uh, I have to choose it as a gift. And so uh, I was probably, uh, one of the least trustful people in the world because I probably was one of the people who should be trusted the least too. So now, you know, there's nothing but vulnerability when you can't see, you know, every person that comes up to you could either be a serial killer or your next soulmate. You just don't know. And so you have to engage in order to find out what that person is. And then that person will, kind of let you know who they are and what they are and you make your definitions based upon that and so i'm never going to see anybody coming at me and i don't know any agendas so i have to assume that they are coming to me to help better my journey or help me help better their journey so i have to trust the whole process i have to trust every every aspect of every process because i don't know what mistrust looks like anymore um so what else can i do but trust it I'd, I'd have panic attacks if I had to be fearful or mistrustful of anything. I, I wouldn't know. Uh, let's put it like this. I would get devoured if I was on snakes on a plane. Right? <laughs> I'd be the first one. <laughs> I just have to trust every single situation. I have to trust the cab driver knows where he's going. I have to trust that you know I'm, uh, I'm with who they say they are. So to, to not trust that would do me a lot of damage. Because my sure. imagination would get carried away, and it just wouldn't be worth it. That's fascinating. That's that's something I wish I. Could. I mean, I'm since I've stopped lying, I've started trusting a lot more because I was in the situation you were, where it was like, well, I'm lying, 
everyone must be lying. But now that I'm not lying, uh, I feel like there's a lot more, uh, you know, there are better people in the world that aren't constantly trying to fuck you over. Yeah. And you're not one of them either. You know, that's right. That's, that's not what I, you know, it's, I did a show to raise um, some funds for guide dogs. And then there was a lady, I still had a little vision. This lady came up to me and she was blind. And of course I'm breaking all the rules. I'm rubbing the dog behind his ear and trying to give it a bite of my hot dog. You're not supposed to touch those damn dogs, but I'm (laughs) fucking with the dog. (laughs) And and so I said, so what was it like? Show me how you might feel, Cyrus. I said, what's it like? And she goes, it was a relief. It was, it was a relief. Why? And she goes, because I had just, I got to stop fighting, not seeing. Now I can just live my life. And now I understand that completely. I'd get to the hours, I'd get to the airport hours and just walk to the wrong gate because I was too stubborn to try to ask for help. But now I just go get some help when I'm there. So I can focus on living my life and being a better person when I'm not, you know, pretending like I can see when I can't and fighting it and fighting it. It's just another space that I can operate in now. And do you think, because it was gradual, I think when some people think about a change like that, they their life is one way one day and a completely different way the next day. And I would think about, as silly as this sounds, I would think about things like hobbies and the, you know, and we, we are experiencing incredibly different things. I deal with an autoimmune disease that's... Uh, stiffened my body and caused chronic pain in a way where I don't interact and enjoy hobbies in the same way. Is there like, how have you, was there like a transition period where you learned how to love the things you used to love in a different way, or you found new ways to enjoy hobbies? And like, what was that like in the transition between sight and no sight? The, um, that was a harder one because I could do everything by myself. You know, I used yeah. to write, you know, I miss pen to paper. Yeah. That, I always feel like that was my, my go-to was to be able to pen to paper, but I can't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and so that transition was hard. So I still, I would get a notebook, even though I couldn't see anything on it. Now it is a write. And of course, you know, nobody could crack that code because I'm writing on top of letters and it's just slanted and crooked, and, sure. but it helped me, it, it helped me feel a little bit better. But then after a while, I said, you know, you're hanging on to a past. So if you're going to go, you got to go to a different way. Uh, yeah. And I can't go for walks and tap into my subconscious mind. So I just kind of just different parts of my brain. Um, instead of watching sports, I listen to them on the radio, which is way more gratifying than watching because the announcer are better. I agree. Uh, I still can play. I can still play chess. And so I got my assistant got mm-hmm. me a blind chess board, which was phenomenal. Uh, and I can memorize probably about up to 30 moves in my head. I can play just me and you could play chess and you can get the board in front of you and I can just have all those coordinates in my head and play. Um, cool. But the part of the hobbies that I do miss, you know, uh, that's, that's hard. That's yeah. hard, but I got to let go of the past and, and see what you're going to create in the future, man. Do you find that um, playing chess on a board like that where you have to memorize 30 moves ahead has made your brain sharper in the comic world yep yeah i I would definitely think that i mean there was something i saw you do once daryl 
and this is before you had lost your vision completely where you you were on stage the first show so i saw you two shows and you were on stage the first show and you were talking to a couple and you were bringing up things that you knew about them that it, it didn't make sense that you knew them and so afterwards i asked you i'm like did you know that couple how did you know that stuff and then you told me you went down and you sat kind of where the people would come in and you would listen to conversations as they walked in. Yep. So you would know, know stuff about the crowd members. And that was like above and beyond. I mean, I think to me, listening to my set from the night before and taking notes is so painstaking. You know, I like, you know, throw my arms in the air like a, a child that doesn't get what he wants. And then <clears throat> when you told me you were doing that just to get a little insight from the audience, I mean, that's it's just another incredible thing that that I would have never thought of. It's it's, it's everything is about a connection, right? So those people pay their money to come in, and so I always get the earliest because I don't want to hear them filing in, and because even when I could see that have very I was never a great crowd work guy because I couldn't make eye contact with them, all that sort of stuff. But I can listen to them with what they're excited about, what they're celebrating, and a lot of time MCs don't ask questions, and so I just listen. But so when I do get on stage, you know, uh, I'm a big dude. And so, I, you know, everybody deals with their first impressions when they see somebody. But I wanted them to know that I've been paying attention to you. Uh, and so that's when I started learning how to do that. You make a good connection with them. Instead of letting them make the connection with you based upon how you look or the first words out of your mouth. So that's how I learned how to do that. Yeah, that, that was amazing. I mean, I was really blown away by it. And if there's any you know, younger comedians listening to this. I mean, that is absolutely something you should consider the the connection with the audience. Because a lot of guys, you know, they get up there. So, you know, some people are are shock comedians where they, you know, mm -hmm. they'll get up and they'll they just want the reaction from the crowd. And and you know, I, oh. I play a little bit of that in my. I kind of write some jokes where I get the crowd to to groan at it, and then I react to their groans for a punchline. Um, but but there are some people that go up and they 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 wonder why the the crowd isn't with them when they have these funny jokes and it's well you have to be likable first there is a first impression and you have to get you have to get the crowd with you and make that connection before you can pull off the the jokes that you know get people to to make that reaction absolutely i'm just yeah absolutely I mean, I, yeah. i'm just thinking of myself sitting by the entry to a club and listening to everybody walk by and you could have 700 people pass me saying the most interesting things you've ever heard and i'd just be sitting there being like did you hear that asshole talking about his truck like i would focus in on the <laughs> right. least interesting worst person and i'd be like where's jeff Where's Jeff? Jeff, let's talk about your truck. And it would just be garbage. There's no, you have to isolate me. I'm like a dog with a disease before a show. Just put me in a room and put a cone on my head. I think you'd be surprised how much people would enjoy that. Because yeah, again, yeah. you made Jeff feel listened to. You made Jeff feel listened to and heard, and and everybody's gonna wonder if you listen to them as well. But you'd be surprised how. I, I'm worried about what happens if Jeff feels heard. <laughs> all right daryl you uh so so you sat me down in madison i mean not, not sat me down like you know listen we were we were sitting down together 
And you brought yeah. something up about, you know, how I do write my jokes sometimes at the beginning to get a groan so then I can yell at the audience for a punchline, whatever. And do you remember what you were telling me? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Oh, well, I'd like to I'd like to hear it. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you you can tell it because if now if we have any any younger comedians listening, <clears throat> I mean, I think that their ear is probably bleeding from how hard they're pushing their AirPod in. Wow. Um, I've always loved the game, your game. And I used to listen to you on Pandora all the time and the connection we had in Milwaukee, everybody, you know, so I got to really check you out. But uh, uh, I noticed that um, you have uh, this incredible ability to get to your premises and then you will say something like I said, just to get the reaction so you can react to the action. And I thought, well, why don't you skip that and start with your first initial thought of everything first and allow them to react the way they want to react. So now you're leading them somewhere as opposed to manipulating their reaction so you can get a thing. I mean, I've heard that you're very good looking, but if you have all those other intangibles, you should be leading them down a path as opposed to uh hiring them as a sherpa and then shitting on them to get you motivated to keep pushing yeah i suppose that's right and i don't uh you know you've only heard that i've changed my voice a bunch of times to tell you i'm good looking so it's just been me telling you that oh and, is that what it is okay <laughs> and as someone who has often been in, been manipulated by chad i i couldn't agree more i think it's time for him to just start <laughs> treating us straightforward. well it, it, it is true because you know if if somebody can sniff out the manipulation, then all of a sudden they, they sit there and they're wondering why it's happening and, and instead of leading. But I, I thought that was your comedic insight is absolutely incredible. How do you how do you write? You said that you you've uh, you don't write in notebooks anymore because that wasn't you were holding on to the past. So how do you how do you do it now? What I just have to listen to things. And so now when people um, are talking to me about something whether it be the pandemic or the pandemic, the mass to this, to that, I'll listen to it and I'll gauge by their emotions. If it's, if it registered with me on an emotional level, I'll go, Oh, I'm, I'm supposed to feel that. Let me dig in there and see what it is. Um, but if something is really profoundly affecting somebody, I could be having dinner with somebody. I hear somebody having a deep relationship conversation. I'll see if I can find, Whoa, what is she trying to say that he's not hearing? And then I'll pull that out and see if I can find a place to make it said out loud. So my ultimate goal uh, as an artist, I mean, as a comedian, is to, when they leave, I want them to have experience at some form all five of the emotions. And that's what humanity is. And I try to be very human on stage. So I'm getting all my insights and information from just listening to people talk. Um, not intentionally. I don't sit down and go, okay, now let's, why don't you say something so I can try to figure out what you're talking about. I just, I just turn my, my radar on, just listen uh, and pay attention. And so I avoid, you know, any of the news or any of that sort of stuff, because that's the ultimate manipulation. Whereas people are just reacting to the sources around them. Yeah. And so I'm trying to be the weather vane for all that sort of stuff. And so I just remember it, what they say, and I remember it. And then, and hopefully something pops up out of it. Wow. <clears throat> That's incredible. I mean, um, there are times where, and I know I keep going back to my standup, but there are times where 
you know, I'll, I'll be in a show. It's not going great. And instead of doing any of the things you just said, I'm just like, I'm going to try to get the most laughs I can make people happy, get out. So there's, you know, there's sometimes I I'll lose the connection or I won't, I won't consider it fully. And, uh, and that's great. I, I think you should write uh, a book on stand-up comedy. Have you ever considered that? Um, not in terms of uh, technical applications of it, but I mean, I, obviously, I, I do want to, you know, do more expressing myself, whether it be through books or whatever. But uh, they haven't had me help teach this class, and I've had other people, you know, talk class at university and stuff. Uh, but I never, it never crossed my mind to write a book. I still certainly read a lot of them growing up. Sure. That's but, funny. Uh, There's that big difference between what you, because our audience knows uh, Kevin. He's Kevin Bozeman. He's hosted this show. We obviously love him. He teaches a, he teaches a class on stand-up. You've helped with it. There's such a difference between there are things like that throughout the country. There's a few people who do it, and it's actually genuinely helpful, and it doesn't cost a bunch of money. And then there are the Kyle ceases of the world. There's like a few, a few of those shysters out there like for $1,800, I'm going to bring in, uh, who the fuck did he bring in? What was it? It was, uh, Louis Anderson. Louis Anderson. Louis yeah. Anderson. Yeah. I'm going to bring in yeah. Louis Anderson and we're going to teach you how to do comedy in the eighties here. Give us your money, everybody. So like that's, that's an interesting thing because I think people like, cease give other people the idea that you can't teach stand-up comedy but i think anybody who's become a good comic knows that you can you just generally learn it from the headliner who takes you on the road or the people who are kind enough to share you know their thoughts on your work and and how to get better and how to be a pro uh but i i think that's that's really interesting when people can actually teach it like kevin does and like you were able to be a part of that yeah, he teaches at DePaul University. He has a class, which is just outrageous. And the final is they go on stage and and perform. And, you know, I've been doing like 23 years I've been doing this and I'm still learning from people like Kevin and, and Daryl and and many others. But uh, Sigh and yeah. <laughs> what were you? Oh, I love it. <clears throat> Kyle Cease, of course. Yeah, Kyle. Um, hey, Darryl, do you want to tell us about your new album coming up? So you have a new album, Super Bloom. Right. And it is it is out because this, this will come out Monday. And so your album is out. It is available to listen. It is available to buy. You want to tell us about the, the process there? Uh, yeah, it was... Um, um, I started working on it. Uh, in 2000, early 2018 or 19, um, uh, when the California fly fires had went and burnt it all up, and then there's torrential downpour, uh, and then which of those two devastation natural disasters weren't enough, you know, you, what else is? And then because of those two natural disasters, nature took over, and there was a burst of poppies, just incredible, that helped resurrect the, the, that community. So that struck a chord with me. I never saw the actual poppies or anything, but it struck a chord with me to just, you know, trust the process, trust the universe. It just, it jives with my belief system. I was going through it because my, uh, Jill, my first wife, Charles Barkley, uh, she, uh, 
<laughs> she uh, she had really, you know, we we knew each other for four months, and the marriage lasted for four months, and she she had such a big impact on me to prove to her that I wasn't, you know, what she thought I was. I actually recorded Blind Ambition on October 2nd, our, our anniversary date, because uh, to thank her. But we stayed friends after I made amends with her. We became friends. But she just went through a lot of hard, hard things in life. And so a couple of years ago, she called me and said she just didn't want to live like this anymore. Uh, it's too much pain. And she was felt disconnected from her kids. And so I tried to talk her out of it, but she, she killed herself. Uh, and so I felt, uh, I felt uh, so hurt that I'd gotten so much from her um and given so little back in that uh you know she got to see me on Conan and and listen to the other podcasts that I was on and everything she's so proud of me but I couldn't stop her from you know I couldn't help her in that pain you know I was remarried and and there was I just couldn't I couldn't do enough and so when she did it and I found out she did it it just it just devastated me um and then at that same time, my dad, who uh, has a huge impact on me as well, uh, had uh, finally got cancer and just wasn't going to fight it. So I'm preparing for that. So I was like, well, where's my super bloom at? So I knew I had to try a way to talk about that. And so that became the beginnings of the album. And then fast forward to um, the, the going blind and the the pandemic and the George Floyd, there was so much world going on uh, and so much angst and pain from everybody feeling it. And all I could, all I had to be, all I could be was introspective, breathe and meditate and go, how am I going to show up in this thing? And I love Chappelle's skill set, but he was setting the war, setting those guys, setting people on fire. And, you know, the first thing you try to do something like this, but then I was like, but that's just not me. That is just not who I am. So I have right. to try to find a way to make all this intense divisiveness and, and hurt and pain and turn into a positive like I've done for my life. So that's what the album is, you know, and I'm I'm pretty proud of it, man. It's it's really something. It's not something like I've ever done before. And I don't think I don't I don't think, you know, a lot of people could have did it because it's been incredible hard work, but I'm really, really proud of it. Yeah, I'm very excited. So we're we're recording this the, the week of the release. It's not out yet while we're recording, but it is out while people are listening. I can't wait because right. <clears throat> I was listening to a a band once called Radio On. They're from my hometown and it's the only, I was sitting in the back of the the venue and they started playing their opening song. It was um it was a cover of Hello There Ladies and Gentlemen and by the time the song was over, I found myself in the in the crowd without knowing it. I had stood up and walked forward because I was so entranced. When you did the bit about Super Bloom, I was I was out of I was sitting when you started. I was out of my seat. I was walking forward and I was just I felt absolutely mesmerized. And then when you hit the punchline my my hands went to my knees like I had just run 15 miles and I was out of breath from laughing god damn it I mean I felt tricked but also like I was given a you know a king's bounty it was incredible thank you man it's uh 
Yeah, it, it means a lot, man. It really means a lot uh, to, to be getting reviews from from peers. You know, that's that's when you know, because we all know we all know the tricks. Yeah. Um, but sure. You know, and all comedy really is a game, a big game of peekaboo. You know, that's where everybody's sense of humor starts from. It's peekaboo, and so the better you are at getting to the peekaboo and still getting a laugh, the better you are at the game, and so. That's that's what I try to do. And I'm glad you felt it, man. Oh, I yeah, I sure did. I mean, <clears throat> we have a mutual friend, uh, Duke from Milwaukee that came with you to Duke. the shows. And it was it was it was great to see yeah. him. Um, yeah. But he he was laughing really hard at me because of how I was laughing. I mean, it was <laughs> it was like this just wildfire had broken out. And and you could and then when I finally came up for air, you could see so I was sitting behind the audience and you could see people's shoulders shaking and they were their hands were going up in the air. I mean, it was it was like a really visceral reaction from uh, from almost everyone. It was I don't know, man. Well done. I like I said, I can't wait to hear the whole album. And uh, again, you can listen to Daryl's Blind Ambition too. That's because that's yeah. And I like I we uh, Chad and I have a very strong uh, a very strong rule about not pushing other people's podcasts because we're you know rickety bitches. But so. I got to tell you, man, I, and I don't even really listen to Marin, and I don't have anything against him, but it's just, it's just not really. I've never it's never really been my show. I remember years ago you were on uh, on WTF, and I just randomly caught a message or an episode after I heard somebody else's. That is one of the best fucking episodes of that. I mean, that was one of the best podcast episodes I'd heard at any point in my life. Obviously, before Mike Cronin came on our show, but it was, uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> dude. I, not to send people from our show to another show, but your fucking episode of Marin was great, dude. Man, you know, it's, uh, that's, I don't know how to describe it, but that's, you know, that is what all that stuff felt like. So when, you know, it took, I recorded Blind Ambition on me and Jill's anniversary and, and, and I finished and I remember next day I was just, I was just too full of uh, energy. And, and I remember, you know, I just cried because I knew there was a big release mm-hmm. of the path that I've been hanging on to. And then. So then when, when everybody started calling with Marin and everything, and so I got to talk to Marin about it. And it was weird, too, because I'd already done that work. I'd already done that work and lived those stories and everything. But then mm-hmm. I, knew, I knew that I had to tell that story so that everybody else couldn't. Um, right. Sure. So it was just a raw and emotional thing. You know, if you tell people, you know, why you're a womanizer, then when the women come out and tell you, you're a womanizer, it just lessens everything. And so I wanted this piece of work to really mean something. So I want to tell everybody, you know, I was selfish and an arrogant asshole. And I made a lot of mistakes, but I made amends. And so rather than try to be up there slinging jokes or trying to get, you know, man's approval or any that sort of stuff, I just knew, you know, this is who I am. Yeah, it was just very... So, uh, it was... I'm glad it went hits you. Yeah, it was just very, I'm a, I just, anytime you can tell someone is uh, really raw and vulnerable, maybe because uh, that is the opposite of who I am, 
Uh, I, uh, I think I admire that greatly. It's like uh, we also have a mutual friend. Do, do you know Ryan Singer? I know Chad and I know him quite well. Ryan Singer. Sure. That was the guy, New York guy. He won Boston one year, right? Yeah, Good joke, writer. No, that's Ryan Stout. That's Ryan yeah, Stout. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan Singer right. is. I know Ryan Singer. Yep. Really funny dude. Bunch of great stuff. But he got basically sexually catfished by a cam girl and went on and talked about it on Marin. And, and same thing. It was just like, you are uh, just the vul- I, I fucking love vulnerability. And I, I think, you know, with Blind Ambition, that's what I'm looking forward to this, the next special as well with all this stuff. And you and Chad are, are close. You and I are, you know, we don't have that relationship. But as a fan of yours, man, the vulnerability is great. So this has been really fun to have you be on here. Glad you guys let me do it too. And uh, any way I can uh, be of assistance to help you guys, I certainly would love to. I uh, really, really appreciate it. Uh, well, absolutely. Just... And I, I, I just want to say, I'm going to recommend if people, so I would listen to Blind Ambition first. Yes. And then go to Super Bloom. But for sure, listen to both. Uh, for sure, uh, Super Bloom, rate it uh you know give it uh give it some comments because that gets it out into the algorithm or whatever it is but um again dude it is such an honor to have you on the show because <clears throat> you are uh you are just probably the smartest guy it, about comedy that's it's I've ever talked to and I am absolutely uh thrilled that we have become friends you man we started in Mexico, and now look where we are, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and if you're ever curious if somebody believes that peekaboo sentence more than you, you let me make a joke about Charles Barkley and James Worthy blasting your ex, and I made a joke about your ex yeah. and your dad, and you just held that for yeah. an hour to reveal that your new piece of art is heavily influenced by both of those people's deaths. So fucking peekaboo, everybody. Daryl's the king. There you go. (laughs) I got to go. All right, man. Thank you guys very much. Hey, if you guys like this, uh, there will be a new episode next Monday and every single Monday at 8 a.m. So click the subscribe button so your phone sends it to you without having to do any work. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.